Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Wesley. And I'm Shivani. And today we are thrilled to have Professor Barry Schwartz with us. Professor Schwartz is the author of the national bestseller, The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less, in which he argues that our culture of almost unlimited choice robs us of satisfaction in our day-to-day lives. He frequently publishes articles for the New York Times, applying his psychological research to the areas of job satisfaction, motivation, and higher education. He is the Dorwin Cartwright Professor of Social Theory and Social Action at Swarthmore College, where he has served on the faculty since 1971 and is currently a visiting professor at Berkeley's Haas School of Business. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor. Uh, One of the questions we like to ask our guests is uh, to talk about an inflection point, a point in their life where they had to make a change or a pivot. And so we were wondering if you could share a moment with us. I'd be delighted to. Let me just make one small correction. I used to be the Dorwin Cartwright professor. My apologies. No, no, no. I, I actually retired <laughs> oh, uh, congratulations. a year ago and moved to Berkeley. And so I am now a visiting professor at Haas. But I'm not going back to Swarovski. Fair, fair. They might take me back. <laughs> but, but you won't I'm go back. I'm not going back. Um, <laughs> Is it the weather? It's not. It's my kids live on the West Coast. My grandkids live on the West Coast. And six-hour plane trips get old in a hurry. Absolutely. So, so it was hard to leave, but it was the right decision. Anyway, inflection points. Um, the I had two significant inflection points that really shaped my career. The first of them was as a freshman in college. I signed up for a psychology class having no idea what psychology was. There was no such thing as psychology in high school. And it turned out the teacher in that class was a guy by the name of Philip Zimbardo, who became a world-renowned psychologist. He did what's come to be perhaps the most famous experiment in psychology, the Stanford Prison Experiment. And he was an incredibly flamboyant, dynamic teacher. And I just couldn't get enough psychology. (laughs) Simultaneously, I thought I was going to be a writer, and I was taking a freshman composition course, which was required. And uh, the teacher in the class seemed to be on a mission to convince me that I couldn't write. Oh, wow. So I was getting incredibly bad feedback from my first life plan and all this exciting stuff. So from that day on, uh, it was psychology, all as much of it as I could possibly get. Uh, and it was just luck. I mean, he happened to be the teacher when I took the class. The second inflection point was after I actually had my job at Swarthmore. And uh, Swarthmore, a lot like CMC is a small place where faculty, everybody in the faculty knows everybody else and departments talk to one another. And I became close with a couple of people in philosophy uh, who were interested in psychology. And they got me to understand that lots of problems that I thought were very narrow matters of psychology, you know, you do a, an experiment in the lab and you get the answer were actually much broader questions involving social structures, economic institutions, and things like that. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, my worldview just got exploded. And I was interested not just in what happens in the laboratory, but how the laboratory is a kind of mimicking of social structures that could be different. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if they were different, people might be different. And that's sort of guided my career ever since. So again, a stroke of good fortune to be <laughs> in the right place at the right time. Absolutely. And so from from both of those inflection points, you you brought up the role of institutions um, and, and sort of influencing it. From sort of your latter uh, narrative, it, it seems like that interdiscipline, uh, interdisciplinary approach, excuse me, was incredibly influential 
towards you. Um, you you introduced this concept of moral skills and and how you know, especially folks nowadays need more more so of it. Um, could you speak more to one explaining what moral skills is? But if any, if anything, what what the role of institutions could be in, in providing more of an avenue of gaining? I'd be delighted. I wrote a book uh, about uh, six years ago with a colleague who's a political scientist called Practical Wisdom. And what we did was we took an idea from Aristotle uh, about what practical wisdom is and how essential it is to living a good life. And we tried to translate it into sort of modern terminology in the context of modern social institutions. And what Aristotle thought is that you, life is complicated. There aren't formulas. There aren't rules. You need to use your judgment. Mm -hmm. You develop judgment by living life, right. being open to being shaped by experience, uh, and getting wiser as you make mistakes and learn from your mistakes. Mm -hmm. But the notion that you can just impose like a template or use an algorithm to solve questions like how do you treat your employee, how do you talk to a student, how do you raise your children, how do you get along with your spouse, he thought was preposterous. Mm -hmm. And we agreed. And so the question is, to what extent are the institutions we inhabit encouraging people to A, develop judgment, and B, use it. Right. And the argument we made in the book is that increasingly we have resorted to uh, 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 institutions run by rule and not by judgment. Mm. We don't trust people to have good judgment. We don't trust people to have the right intentions. Um, you know, and you walk into a shop, is the shopkeeper going to help you get what you want or is the shopkeeper going to help him or herself sell as much stuff as possible. Right. If you don't trust people's motives to serve others and you don't trust their judgment, then you essentially build a whole edifice of rules as a kind of insurance policy against disaster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you want people to follow the rules because if they don't, much worse things will happen. And what we believe is that you know rules are necessary when people don't have judgment, but they're a very bad substitute for people who, A, want to do the right thing, and B, know how to figure out what the right thing is. How do you talk to this friend? Should you be brutally honest, or should you find a way to be kind and, you know, sort of give deliver the bad news mm -hmm. as gently as possible? Some friends, honesty is the right path. Some friends at one time, honesty is the best path. Another time, maybe kindness is the best path. The way you figure that out is by knowing your friend. Right. And there's no rule that says always tell the truth that's going to enable you to negotiate these complicated relationships. And what's true of friendships is true of romantic attachments and parent-child relations mm -hmm. and teacher-student relations and doctor-patient relations. So the argument in the book is this is what we need. And every day we're making decisions as a society to make it harder and harder for people to provide us with what we need. Right. So, it, it, you know, it's wonderful to hear that. Um, I'm a philosophy major myself, and I kind of stumbled into it after taking one class and fall, falling in love with it. Um, and we were recently talking about Aristotle and that very thing of you need to de develop this judgment. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, you know, you obviously think a lot about higher education, um, and you, maybe you could say we don't teach enough ethics classes or things like that. Um, but it also seems like Aristotle believed that you develop judgment through practice, yes. through doing it, you know, in repeated trials, um, and through experience of having different experiences and kind of figuring out what it is when the circumstances are different in each case. Um, do you think colleges have a role in kind of having this more experiential 
teaching or do you think that they can kind of rest in the traditional model, which seems to be more of rules and um, that kind of thing? So uh, I think we have too many ethics so classes. That, that's what I was going <laughs> to okay. reference. Okay. Because you don't learn how to be an ethical person by taking an ethics mm -hmm. class. Aristotle, your characterization mm -hmm. of Aristotle, I think, is exactly right. You learn how to be an ethical person by trying to be an ethical person mm -hmm. and discovering how bad you are at it and getting better. And so there is no substitute for experience. Uh, my collaborator, Ken Sharp, and I taught this class on wisdom. And the first thing we said is, listen, the aim of this class is not to make you wise because you don't learn how to be wise in a class. Mm -hmm. The aim of the class is to make you appreciate how important it is to try to be wise. And the way you become a wise doctor is by practicing medicine. And you start out bad at the, the wisdom part of it, and you get better, if, at least if your mind is open to being, to being changed by what you experience. And I think that's true in business. I think that's true in teacher-student. And the practicality, to get back to your institution's question, is at most places, not here and not at Swarthmore, most places, you know, students are in a class with 400 other students. Mm -hmm. what is, it's not like you got the teacher and the student sitting on opposite ends of the log having a conversation. So how, you know, the best you can do is communicate didactically because you don't get a chance to develop relationships with individuals that will enable you to find exactly the right way to talk about what needs to be talked about with each and every student. So I think mostly, in addition, uh, universities, colleges and universities have become extremely reluctant to stand for any sort of uh, set of moral uh, tenets. You know, the great, the great um, um, benefit of modern liberal society mm -hmm. is that each of us gets to decide for him or herself what's important and what's valuable. Who am I to tell you mm -hmm. what's important? All I can do is give you some intellectual tools, uh, tell you how to be polite to other people, and then leave it to you to cultivate your own values. That didn't used to, I mean, uh, uh, universities were not nearly so nervous about standing for things uh, 50 or 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. Now they're extremely nervous about standing for anything aside from, you know, uh, uh, intellectual honesty, don't plagiarize, right. don't cheat, and don't say nasty, racist, and sexist things, mm -hmm. and don't rape people. That's, that's about it. You know, anything else is, it's anything goes. And if you, you know, we're not here to make you moral people. We're not here to make you citizens. Mm -hmm. We're here to cultivate your intellect and the rest. It's your parents' job. It's society's job. It's your job. It's not our job. So we've kind of abdicated, in my opinion, we've abdicated responsibility because we don't have the nerve to say this is what we stand for and here's why. And if you don't like it, go somewhere else. Right. So I, you know. To, to couple with uh, Wes's philosophy major, I, I'm a policy major uh, myself, and I, there's definitely, you know, across the federal government, the role of frameworks, um, and less so in in sort of prescribing regulations to to at least I, I can speak to industries like cyber, but more so trying to standardize um, and bringing that back to higher education. I, I used to think that the role of universities, and and please, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, is to to provide this framework that isn't so stringent that it dictates what you should do, um, but but more so brings up the questions that I think you have raised. And so it, 
in, in terms of the evolution that you've seen in university campuses, if we were to take the issue of free speech, which is becoming incredibly Indeed. relevant across all, um, you know, both liberal arts colleges and, and the, the classical state school as well, how would you see that conversation both started but also scoped? Well, it, it's a really hard issue. Right. Um, and, you know, here I am at Berkeley now. And Berkeley is just getting it between the eyes, both because of it, its symbolic status mm -hmm. as a, sim, as a you know, standard bearer for free speech and because uh, provocateurs, mm -hmm. knowing about it, have deliberately thrown free speech commitment in Berkeley's face and essentially created a situation that Berkeley can't, where Berkeley can't win, no matter what it does. Right. Um, so my sense is... People should be – universities should give people the chance to speak. Mm -hmm. The right response to having these, these provocateurs uh, with no intellectual content on campus is you just don't go. Uh, you make it a non-event right. by not participating in it in any way, which is exactly the opposite of what they want. Mm -hmm. you know, there are serious – very conservative people who make arguments. Right. None of those people are being invited to the campus at Berkeley. The people who are being invited to the campus at Berkeley are there simply to provoke. And that, that's the intent of the people who invite them. Mm -hmm. And that's what they do. That's what they're good at. So the way you respond to people who have nothing to teach you is you don't go. Right. Uh, now, so, so my sense is that it's better to ignore these things and let them happen than it is to make a stink. And if I were a Berkeley, Berkeley faculty member, what I'd be asking, I guess I kind of am a Berkeley faculty <laughs> You member, are indeed. What I'd be asking is what have we done wrong such that our students think these are the people who should be invited? Hmm. Not people who can challenge the liberal, the, you know, the left wing bubble that is the Berkeley campus, mm -hmm. but people who are just cartoons what have we done wrong so that they think the, the way to use their intellectual resources and the institutional resources is by inviting cartoons to campus? That, to me, is the, the, most, the, 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 the biggest sign of a failing is that the, the Republican organizations or the right-wing student organizations chose to invite these people rather than serious libertarians mm -hmm. or other flavors of conservatives. So for me, this is a sign that we are failing to educate, uh, and um, and I'd wor worry about how to do things differently so that a the conservative groups would invite challenging speakers, and b the the lefties would feel would understand how important it was to hear what they had to say. Uh, so I think it's a real failure. On the other hand, you know, the first time they had one of these things, there was serious violence and destruction right. of property, um, not not by Berkeley students, by outsiders who mm -hmm. came onto campus. Anarchists. Deliberately. To, they also, just like the, you know, the, the extreme right wing wants to provoke headline grabbing confrontations, these le extreme left wingers also want that to happen. And they made it happen. It didn't happen on campus. It happened off campus. Yeah, um, storefronts were destroyed in downtown Berkeley, which is just a few, you know, steps away from the campus. Right. And and they spent a lot of time and money providing security on mm -hmm. the campus, mm -hmm. and then it migrated. Mm -hmm. So now what do you do? <laughs>
The last event, they, they spent $600,000 oh, wow. on this guy, Ben Shapiro, appeared last week, $600,000 on security. That's incredible. You think? That's, <laughs> you know, 20 students tuition for a year yeah. for what it costs to provide security for this one event. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's certainly a, uh, an issue that we need to find some answers to, yep. but each institution keeps dealing with in their own way. You know, certainly CMC has their own challenges and Berkeley obviously has maybe some unique challenges there. Um, but I kind of want to transition this. I think it's a good segue kind of back to your work. Um, you talk about in The Paradox of Choice how having too many options can create an anxiety of trying to come up with the perfect option. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that the same thing could be true of on college campuses where there are kind of so many opinions out there that maybe we have too many opinions? Or are you of the opinion that you know maybe we should kind of open it up? Um, I'm interested to hear if that same idea, um, you know, use the example of shopping in the supermarket and choosing between toothpaste. I wonder if the same thing maybe applies to speech and thoughts. I I actually don't think – I think the one area of modern life where there isn't enough variety is the area of political ideas and political organizations and political commitments. Interesting. There's an unbelievable polar – it's almost like magnetic fields. And you're not allowed to have nuanced positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're immediately bludgeoned, at least by one side and maybe by both sides. Mm-hmm. If you say something like, say, with regard to Obamacare, it's complicated. Or with regard to Sanders' national health insurance mm-hmm. proposal, it's complicated. It'll break the bank. It can't work. It doesn't work as well in these other countries as you say it does, blah, blah, blah. You know, it is a very complicated matter. There is a whole spectrum of possible positions that you could take. None of them are available to people if you expect anyone to listen to you beyond the first, the next 10 seconds. You either have to line up with universal health care paid for by the government mm-hmm. or free market health care paid for by individuals and anything in between, anything that recognizes the complexity of the, te- of the problem is just ruled out. So we have really pushed people into taking positions that are extreme, uh, and the middle ground is essentially uninhabited. That's the only area I can think of in life where we don't have enough choice. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. And so to put the uh, the question of overabundance, um, I, I know you you reference the sweet spot uh, between yep. the amount of choices where it's it's the perfect balance uh, to basically warn against or to prevent extremism um, using that that uh, prior example, but also uh, ward off anxiety or paralysis is, is the word that you use. Mm-hmm. Can you um, place this in the terms of history? Because uh, also being a student of history, I, I see post-industrial revolution um, as this as this perfect sweet spot, really, at least um, a, a couple of years after the fact where you're you're giving the option of choice to so many more disenfranchised groups that didn't have it prior. So I'm speaking to women at this point, um, but can really not track that the point where we we really did become too overabundant of a society. Well, again, it, it's really, the, there is a sweet spot. You know, people, psychologists used to think choice is good because autonomy is good. Mm-hmm. The more choice people have, the more autonomy they have. And there can't be too much of a good thing. Well, now we know there can be too much of a good thing. Right. So that certainly applies to buying cell phones and cereal and choosing a career and choosing a college and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. There's far more op- there are far more options available than any sane person needs. When it comes to liberating 
classes of people, I, I don't think it's the same issue. You know, either you are, uh, you, you have opportunities as a woman, or you don't. Either, so you don't, you don't see it as a, an incremental, uh, incremental, excuse me, benchmark? Uh, well, I, I just don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know what it would mean to say women have too much freedom mm. and autonomy. Fair. Uh, or blacks have too much freedom and autonomy. They used to have none, and now they have some. And I don't know what the standard is. Um, you know, I think if you look at, say, the white male as sort of the paradigm case of privilege, mm -hmm. the problem is not that white males had too much choice. The problem is that white males have too much choice when it's combined with affluence. What limited the possibilities for the privileged white male was their financial circumstances. Right. So when it was a working class country, even though there, were, there was nobody holding white males back, their material circumstances held them back. So the, the set of possibilities was much smaller than it is now. Right. The, the growth of affluence and the explosion of communications now means essentially that if you're in this privileged class, anything and everything is possible. So, you know, women ought to be in the position where they suffer from too much choice in the same way that men do. Right. And blacks and Latinos and immigrants, I mean, you name it, they should all be in that mm -hmm. position. And then you figure out how to dial it back as a society. Right. So that, the, you know, the, the metaphor of a fishbowl, we live in a fishbowl mm -hmm. where choices exist, but they don't overwhelm. Right. So At the, the moment the fishbowl has been shattered... Uh, and nobody knows what to do. And if you're a, an oppressed minority, mm -hmm. your fishbowl has not been shattered. Right. Uh, but I think you got to shatter it and go. The only way to know when you have enough is to get too much. Too much. Interesting. And I think, you know, I'll worry. I think women and blacks should worry about too much after they've gotten there. That's fair. And so the affluence really does come down to the material good segment. I think it does. I mean, okay. money liberates. You. Right. Um, even if you're not interested in more in material acquisitions, mm -hmm. it frees you up of having to worry about material acquisitions. You can be a, you know, if you have an inheritance, you could be a sculptor. If you don't have an inheritance, you can't be a sculptor. You've got to pay your rent. <laughs> so there's something that liberates you about money, even if you're not interested in getting more of it. Uh, and that's, uh, and you know, we've the society's gotten richer. And the consequence of that is that there's more choice available to people than there used to be. And the consequence of that is that people are, you know, anxious, depressed, consistently thinking they're making bad decisions, even when they're not. And, I, you know, that's what I'm going to talk about later. So, so I don't um, That's a good transition, uh, you know, talking about even if you don't value money, maybe, you know, um, you might have other options. So we want to ask you one question we ask all of our guests, which is how do you define success? Um, and maybe that's something that would help our listeners as they're trying to define success for mm -hmm. themselves. So I... It's a terrific question, and I really never thought about what counts as success until I guess I had, to some degree, achieved it. Mm -hmm. I essentially lived my life putting one foot in front of the other. Mm -hmm. I wanted to have a successful marriage. I wanted to raise kids who were reasonably satisfied, happy with their lives. <laughs> you know, I wanted to inspire students. I wanted to do work that the world paid attention to. Um, and, you know, for, I'm, I've been fortunate that all of those things have come to pass, especially this world paying attention. That mm -hmm. sort of I never expected. <laughs> I was expecting, like most academics, that I would do stuff that eight people in the world knew about. <laughs> uh, but that turned out not to be true in my case. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, 
what I have come to see is, uh, at least with respect to work, what's most, uh, the, what I think is the most um, important criterion for success is really meaning. You know, and what I think meaning means is how does your work make a difference, mm -hmm. either to the world or to other people? Uh, and if the work is meaningful in that sense, that it has a positive impact on the lives of other people, then it seems to me you've been successful at your work. Um, successful as a marital partner and a parent, that's more complicated. <laughs> that is well, fair. Uh, that sounds like some practical wisdom. Uh, right. <laughs> right. And with that note, um, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Well. Thank you so much for being interested. <laughs> Thank you again, Professor Schwartz, uh, for joining us. And to all our listeners out there, remember to stay hungry.